Welcome to the Providence College Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Email podcast at providence.edu with questions or comments. Go Friars! Hello and welcome to the PC Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and I'm here with our PC videographer and producer, Chris Judge, class of 05. He has a major gift officer here at PC. I've had the pleasure of meeting hundreds of fascinating people within the Friar family, and I'm excited to share some of their stories with you. Today, we are joined by Blaine Payer, class of 2018. Blaine is a philosophy major here at Providence College. And this past summer, he was a Veritas scholar and overall just a very interesting guy. Blaine, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. So you're one of the first Veritas scholars from a new program that was established last summer. Can you basically just explain that real quick for someone who hasn't had any real familiarity with the Veritas Research Fund? Yeah, of course. Uh, there was we, we know very little about it because the benefactor chose to uh, remain anonymous, but we there was a very, very large donation, and there, I believe there was four students that received uh, a really special and prestigious research grant to do a summer research project and allocate funds for it. And... It was a, a total, I've never, I had never heard of it before, so it was a, a huge surprise when I found out about it, and I didn't know how few students received it until probably the middle of the summer. Right, and I think this year they bumped up the number, but it was, uh, I know you had to apply for it, correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, very frantically, I might add, I was applying for it because my my mentor, Jeffrey Nicholas from the philosophy department, asked me to do research with him. And I said yes, and I thought that was it because he made me believe that that was all I had to do. And then three days before the the four-page single-spaced essay was due about my proposal for my research project, I just kicked it into high gear and had to throw a, a thesis together. Got it. So did you guys already have a topic in mind? Are we already working on something before this came up? We were kind of spitballing ideas together. We, we passed a few back and forth. He's very interested in science fiction, and I I relate to that very well. I'm very, very fascinated with movies and film and cinema in general. So I knew that whatever I did, I wanted to incorporate philosophy, my major, and film, my new minor, and my, my lifelong passion. So I suggested a few things for him. You know, perhaps I could just watch different sci-fi films, pick up on some social commentary, political commentary. He's very interested in capitalism, late capitalism or casino capitalism, as a lot of scholars like to call it. And he tossed out zombies and vampires, Um, vampires dating back to, you know, Karl Marx and enlightenment philosophers were using vampires to describe blood sucking capitalists. Oh, okay. And I kind of ran with the vampire idea at first. And then I started to read a little bit about Marx and I realized that had he known what a zombie was uh, the modern Hollywood zombie is the flesh-eating zombie maybe his writings would look a little bit different you know maybe capital would feature fewer vampires and more Haitian voodoo zombies and more uh, flesh eaters uh, the living dead and I'm a big zombie nerd at the end of the day you know any kind of zombie that you throw at me even if it's a bad a B movie I'll still watch it and I'll enjoy every second of it got it. so you were into this from way you know way way before you came to pc this was always a <laughs> it's been a long relationship with zombies got it so what's the um is there an evolution then so you, you brought up so, so the zombie culture the zombie movie phenomenon going back like you mentioned about almost 100 years 
and then you have this period of time where you have all sorts of different zombie movies coming out, different you know cultural factors and different periods in American history. How does that how has that evolved over time or has it evolved? Well, to look at the the or the origin of the word zombie, it's West African in origin, and it was conceived as a big overarching metaphor and symbol for slavery, for slaves that didn't really understand their indentured servitude. The zombie was a representative of slavery, but a zombie was not always a flesh eater and it wasn't always a rotting corpse that had come back from the dead. Usually when it, you know, when it traveled, when the word traveled from West Africa to Haiti via the slave trade around the 17th century, we're looking at a French run Haiti. So the conditions of slavery are just atrocious at the time, really, really egregious abuses of human life. A zombie was someone that was transformed into an undead figure by a voodoo curse or a potion. Uh, It was usually a spell. And when you look at the earliest representations of zombies in literature or in film, such as White Zombie, which is the first zombie film that came out in 1932, all of the zombies are, they're always played by African Americans, and they had no interest in consuming human flesh that zombie didn't exist yet okay they were basically as george romero you know the godfather of the hollywood zombie he described them as those boys from the caribbean that did the wet work for some kind of white plantation owner so thematically a zombie was very much a symbol of slavery right up until about 1967 when george romero made night of the living dead and that's when the zombie became a flesh eater return from the grave and that's the zombie we have today now was that 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 shift in what a zombie meant or a zombie what a zombie was was that just a shift in the film industry or was that also a shift in terms of like uh you know different science fiction or different novels and things like that or was it just kind of a universal shift around that time it's more there's a lot of catalysts that went into the the shift the haitian zombie was not a popular topic for films. It was never very popular. Between 1932 and 1999, there were only about 150 zombie movies made, which if you look at films made between 2000 and 2014 alone, there've been almost 300 zombie movies. Oh wow. So there's a rapid rapid shift in interest in zombies, and people only really started to get interested in them when they became the flesh eaters. So if you think of the social climate around the the dawn of the zombie movie, the the early 1930s, the first one came out just about two and a half years into the Great Depression, the public would resonate with laborers that literally had to dedicate their entire lives, their entire existences to working in order Mm -hmm. to survive. Uh, Bela Lugosi, who plays a character named Murder Legendre in White Zombie, he sees that one of his guests is kind of they're tentative about really signing on to the zombie indentured servitude that Lugosi's character uses. And he says to his guest to not judge him because these zombies don't care about long hours and they're faithful workers and they're hard workers and you don't have to pay them. So if you were an audience member in the great depression and you saw a character that was paid nothing that had to work all hours of the day and that had very poor living conditions, that really hit home because Mm -hmm. of the Great Depression and the stock market crash. So as that progressed, as we move out of the 1930s, it never really became very popular. 
uh, the 1940s horror movies basically were wiped off the map because of World War II and the Holocaust and how how real horror had become Got it. in the world. Nobody wanted to portray horror. Nobody was scared of Frankenstein and Dracula anymore. They were scared of Mussolini and Hitler and real human beings that could cause such terror. So once we go up to the 60s, which is just about the beginning of the dawn of the American shopping mall and we're kind of knocking on the door of revolution mm-hmm. with Vietnam and the Reagan era of Reaganomics and but just mass general consumption. Pros- and just general prosperity after World War II. Absolutely. It's... The zombie, the the flesh eater is a consumer before anything else. They consume everything in sight. They, if you look at some of the most popular zombie movies of the 60s and even some remakes in the early 2000s, Dawn of the Dead takes place exclusively in a shopping mall where the zombies are in the shopping mall and the characters, the survivors are trying to figure out why they're there. And the only answer they can come up with is that it's just where they belong. It's where they belonged in life. And even in death, they're attracted to this area of mass capitalist greed and consumption. So there's a real shift in in just about 40 years between zombie as laborer, the alienated laborer and the oppressed laborer to the consumer. Once we see that post-World War II prosperity and then we see the Reagan era of mass consumption, the zombie very much becomes a rampant consumer. And so from the mid 80s, on has that persisted or is that has that changed you mentioned you just mentioned there are 300 films from what 2012 2014 yeah between 2000 2014 2000 2014 so in that period so this is you know we're talking you know 20 30 years after the the reagan era has there been another change or is that still uh the same the same reason that the zombies are portrayed or is it just a full a fuller scope of different different reasons the modern zombie, we're very much in a period that in my research I call the zombie renaissance. There have been three big eras. I just discussed the first two, which is the Great Depression and then the Vietnam to Reagan era. The big, big zombie era in the post-millennial zombie era, it started in maybe 2002 with such movies like 28 Days Later. And then there's the 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead. And people started getting more interested in zombies. But zombies really started to take off after the 2008 housing market crash. That's when the zombies started to represent something very different. They were consumers, yes. But the worlds that they were consuming in became a little bit more complex than just survivors versus zombies and who's going who's gonna to make it out on top. Uh, a big theme of 28 Days Later is that it is the zombie apocalypse. Yes. And that's it's horrible. You know, your family and friends are probably dead. And all the, the structural foundation of society has been eradicated. But with that means you don't have to pay your mortgage anymore. And you don't have any bills. And you can go into a supermarket like the characters in 28 Days Later do. You can take five shopping carts full of food. And then you jokingly leave your credit card on a counter that's not being manned because capitalism can't survive in a world with no humans and no structures. So the post-millennial zombie, although it is still a rampant consumer, Mm -hmm. they're consuming in a world where finally capitalism doesn't exist anymore. And that's when you see a lot of very self-aware zombie films like Zombieland in 2009. It's basically... It's a comedy film before it's a horror film. And these characters are learning how to survive and thrive in a world where they are liberated from any kind of constraints of late capitalism or consumerism. You can consume whatever you want in the zombie apocalypse 
with no kind of repercussions or worrying about paying for it. Got it. So this is so interesting because, you know, I've seen, you know, several zombie movies. I know certainly not the level where you are. Uh, You're like a whole, whole different level. (laughs) But uh, do you think that kind of the underlying themes or the original reasons for these portrayals um, come across to all viewers? Or do you think that these underlying themes are easier to see for certain movies than others? Like when you talk to, say, you you talk to your friends who might like these movies, but might not be as well-versed in the history of it as you, are they aware of some of these themes? Because I got to be honest, some of this is is pretty new to me. Well, there's a really fine line between between being a viewer and kind of part of the experience of film and then being a scholar and a critic about it. Now, horror movies have never been taken seriously right up until Robin Wood, a very acclaimed film critic in the 1960s and 70s, started to look at horror movies in hindsight, specifically the zombie movies of George Romero, like Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, the original of the Dead trilogy. Mm-hmm. And he started to pick out these these underlying themes and these motifs that George Romero was trying to put in his films that perhaps a regular viewer would either not really care about or not pick up on because we see shows like the walking dead, Mm -hmm. which came out in 2010, which again is no coincidence that it was two years after the 2008 stock market crash. The walking dead isn't a big area of social critique. It's a very popular TV show. It's backed by very big corporations and very big corporations are scared of social critique because usually that implies that they would be critiquing the very systems that allow them to exist. So you'll never see Warner Brothers producing a film critiquing late capitalism because without late capitalism, Warner Brothers could never exist in the way it does. Or at least not make it like a headlining focus. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. It's exactly right. It's it's basically going to be self-critique and that's not what these big corporations want. That's not the dialogue that they want to engage in. They want you to buy their product, experience it, like it and like it enough where you go back and you buy their products again. That's why we're in the cinematic age of the sequel. But with shows like the walking dead, it's very much become just an underdog story as human beings. We, as uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau said in uh, the 18th century, Human beings come pre-programmed with a sense of compassion where we don't like to see other human beings suffer. So when we watch these zombie films, we innately side with the survivors, even though the survivors are usually of pretty unredeemable merit, just because we we want the humans to win. We want this kind of American spirit of we can overcome any odds or obstacles in front of us. And they're in, usually the... It's just, I don't know how to say it. Like the people who aren't zombies. What do you call the humans in the movies that aren't zombies? Survivors. Sorry, so, sorry. so the survivors in these movies are just like the underdogs. So it's almost like an underdog exactly. story as well. And we love underdog stories. But that's really all The Walking Dead is at the end of the day. It's humans versus zombies and usually humans versus bad humans versus zombies. So there's a nice little triangle. Right. And then it becomes a character study where you learn about these characters and you learn about all the very human mistakes they make. Nobody's really worried about critiquing late capitalism or, or consumerism in The Walking Dead because that's very much a series based on survival. You're never going to see these characters thriving. And I have watched the show up until the most recent season. It's testing my patience now because the writing has just gone so, so low since its its conception. But 
these characters, every time they're thriving, they always get kind of a reality check. And that reality check usually includes the death of some some background characters, the death of one main character, and pretty much being leveled back down to just surviving. Mm-hmm. So The Walking Dead doesn't really open up a dialogue where you can see characters like in Zombieland, like in 28 Days Later, enjoying the zombie apocalypse. And I, I say enjoying, I pick that word very carefully because there are a lot of moments where these characters really do enjoy the apocalypse and and the perks that it has when they can momentarily forget the hardships but most zombie movies have a hard time detaching from the hardships they like producing the underdog story they like producing the emotional last man standing kind of story Mm -hmm. right that makes sense but also in this era of film not film with a capital f but just anybody who can produce a video Mm-hmm. Right, it's just the widespread technology. You can pick up your phone and create a video. Have you seen? Has that impacted this genre at all? Yeah, it absolutely has. And and there's a fun answer and there's a boring answer. The boring answer is that zombie movies are incredibly cheap to make. You need minimal effects, minimal makeup, some some squibs for fake blood. Uh, your friends can act in it. All you have to do is dress up a couple of the extras as zombies. And it costs a couple thousand dollars to make. And zombie movies, since they're so popular, a lot of studios, independent studios, are using this momentum to produce cheap films that almost guarantee a box office return. Now, that's just production value is a kind of a boring answer. But George Romero himself, when he was making Night of the Living Dead, invested very, very little money in it. And he just, you know, all the zombies were basically the sound operators and the most of his producers and his investors appear in the film as zombies or news anchors or, or sheriff's department members. Really, It was all, it was a backyard guerrilla film for, and for a long time, they had no idea if it was even going to be made or not. And then suddenly when he releases it 40 years later, it's produced over $50 million. And when you weigh that against a $60,000 budget, that seems like a surefire for anybody that can pick up a camera, get your friend to dress up and, kind of shuffle around your backyard and boom, you have a zombie movie. Now your passion for this is, is clearly evident. You spend a lot of time on it. You talk about it enthusiastically. You're really into it. So I have to ask why major in philosophy and you have such a strong passion for this uh, when you're you deciding to come to PC or just the early part of your higher education, what drew you to the philosophy part, not away from film, but in conjunction with it? I'm a big proponent of the liberal arts education system. I think everybody should be who should receive a liberal arts ed- education for at least two years because you have no idea what you're going to do when you're 36, when you're 18. So coming out of high school, I and I still would love nothing more than to spend the rest of my life in film and in Hollywood and, and being surrounded by cinema. But that's a very unidirectional career avenue to take as a philosophy major i feel as though i have more paths in front of me and it's very easy to synthesize with film because the basis of every single film is is philosophical it's someone's thoughts and theories and opinions going into this beautiful form of art but it's also giving me the opportunity to perhaps go to law school, which looks very likely right now. I, but I'd also be going into the entertainment field of law and move to the West Coast. So I guess, uh, you know, Jim Carrey really sums this up the best. 
a lot of young people choose certain avenues for life, citing practicality, but really because they're scared of reaching for the stars and not being able to touch them. And film is a very specific field where you will be a starving artist if you don't have the right connections. And sometimes you can be really, really good at what you do and still not succeed. My sister's 10 years older than, than I am. And she went to BU as a film major for the first three years. And then Mm -hmm. she switched to communications her senior year. And now that's her career. That's what she does. Got it. And then you also, you mentioned this before as we were doing our sound check and getting ready for this podcast that you actually, you, you write screenplays on the side. It's something you enjoy doing. You've written three or four that you're actually, you shouldn't say you've written them. You're currently working on them. So how does that play into what you just mentioned in terms of, you know, really striving for things and not trying to be scared of going after a passion or a pursuit that you find enjoyable or anything like that? Well, actually, interestingly enough, I, I'm writing one of the screenplays is, deals heavily with zombies, I think, because I had so many fever dreams about zombies from this <laughs> this research. I can't tell you the last week I, that's gone by without one dream, at least one dream, going totally fine and then taking a sharp left turn to the zombie apocalypse. It's really, really haunting me. But I, I'm so fascinated by them and I'm so, you know, I, I'm so aware of movies li- or films uh, like World War Z or uh, TV shows like The Walking Dead and things like that that focus so much on the violence of the zombie apocalypse. And I'm much more concerned about uh, the human side. How much does it take? How much does a human being have to be pushed before they lose their humanity? So I am working on a zombie screenplay and I'm working on, uh, you know, uh, sort of a mockumentary about finding out what the real meaning of love is that I could probably make here if I really set my mind to it. And I'm never going to stop doing film because I love it so much and it's a passion of mine. And just because I'm writing screenplays on the side doesn't mean that I have to dedicate a career to it. But I also like to, I, I, I write short stories and I send them out to you know, independent public publications. And I like to see if people enjoy what I'm writing and get some feedback for it. So one day, maybe if I'm secure enough with doesn't matter finances or, or, or I'm just at a point in my life where I feel as though I can take that leap of faith into film, I'd like to have basically a portfolio. And I just think it's, it's really fun. You know, if I have free time, I love writing screenplays. I love making films and and I'm always going to love making films. Now, has that always been the case for you? Have you always kind of, I guess going back, when did you start, you know, and I put this in context, I guess, of my own life. Like if I had free time, I was either doing something athletic or I sat, you know, I sat in front of the TV and watched something. I think I, you know, there are very few people out there who would just gravitate to something like that. So creative, maybe at such a young age, was that just a natural move for you? You mentioned your sister's also has a kind of a similar similar path, at least early on with some of her studies, or was this just kind of something like familiar or how you were brought up? Well, my dad is very much into film. My dad is a big uh, fan of film dating back, you know, to the forties. He, he grew up watching those late night horror movies and he's a big fan of Roger Corman B movies. And he loves George A. Romero and he loves zombie movies. And we really bonded over old Hollywood films when I was a child. And I guess it, more so than new films, because new films are very much, you know, big, big popular names acting in front of a green screen. I was always fascinated by 
you know, Robin Hood in 1938. That's my favorite movie of all time. I, I loved watching people build these massive sets and have such beautiful costumes and create such an entertaining but meaningful story. And from a very young age, even one of the first movies I've ever remember watching start to finish was Night of the Living Dead. And it really messed me up for a little while. But I realized that as I got older, I was I, I liked the content and I liked the action, but I was fascinated with how it was made. And I liked hearing about camera angles i was hearing about set design and once i got to high school that really once i I found kind of an avenue or an outlet for my interests it really started taking off i made videos when i was a younger kid i had a Mm -hmm. very bizarre youtube series where my my good high school oh my good uh, middle school friend would put on jack skellington mask and we would just do antics but it wasn't just like i was filming guerrilla style and randomly i would write out scripts that we would do and i would have camera angles and we'd have setups so i was always very meticulous about the filmmaking process and once i got to high school and people started asking me you know can you make this film for the talent show can you make a a publicity film that we can put on the school website can you uh, write a screenplay so we can do an interfilm class film then i really started to realize that this is this is something i really love to do right so how have you continued doing that sort of thing here at pc besides the research that you've already mentioned well i'm actually currently in an independent study i just uh, joined an independent study where i'm with jeffrey nicholas again and i'm researching third wave feminism in film so i'm continuing film research just uh, kind of switching genres over a little bit and i participated in the film festival freshman year we came in third place we did a mockumentary about uh two characters that we invented um that were producing brokeback mountain the musical and we did not pick that independently we were given a sheet of paper with a quote from brokeback mountain uh, i wish i knew how to quit you and we had to make a film about that and we had no idea what to do with that because we got the weirdest one out of all of them that you could have possibly gotten so we did a mockumentary and i've written when i since I've been in school, but and what's a, and a, just just to clarify, a mockumentary is kind of like a, a parody. Yeah, it's you know, the Office or things oh, that okay. they look like they could very well be a documentary, but they're obviously with actors and there's a script and there's setups. It's mm-hmm. um, a very staged documentary, kind of like reality television, but uh, not so terrible. But when I, since I've been in school, I write a lot, but it's so time consuming to make a film. You know, I never have five days off burning a hole in my planner. And I can just, you know, go wherever I want and make a film and start pumping out films. Because then once you film it, once you get enough people together to film it, you go, to, you have to edit it. And it just becomes such a long process, which is why something like the 24-hour film festival is so amazing. Because it forces you to shoot and edit in the same day. And you bond with your friends in ways that you never really thought of before. And that's another really beautiful thing about film. It really brings people together that maybe you wouldn't have spoken to or interacted with before it gives you this middle ground to bond over and so you get the quote and then you have 24 hours from that moment yeah that's how it worked my freshman year we got the quote we we picked a random quote we made a team of four Mm -hmm. and then we had 24 hours to the to the hour to film edit and produce a film so how long was the film i believe five and a half minutes long it was and that was cut down from probably 45 minutes of film so when we filmed the interviews we my my roommate and i at the time we just had a an improv conversation for 14 minutes and then we picked 
the parts of that that we liked the best, and we worked around that to film certain uh, actual scenes for to to kind of visualize the interview process. And it was so much fun. You know, it, it was kind of frantic, and you know, you you're up at four in the morning in the film lab stitching together pieces of film you can't really think straight anymore and you're really tempted to just watch all the the outtakes and the bloopers that you and your friends have but it's such a i've always thrived in that process that the pressure's on and the high school was the same way always working against a deadline for film and always trying to make the best possible product that you can without getting stuck and focusing on a four second clip that's very very easy to do right so as you're going through your your college experience you obviously have a lot of stuff going on. You're very involved with certain things. Do you have, as you progress, do you just kind of go with the flow with where these projects take you? Or do you have certain goals that you try to reach as you move, move through your years? It's really difficult in this high octane environment to sit down alone and write for fun. You know, if you're not doing homework, you're in class. If you're not in class, you're writing a paper, you're studying, you're just after school or after class activities, you know, I'm in the acapella group, the co-ed acapella group, and I'm also trying to write for the newspaper. I'm in the environmental club. There's so many things that take up time outside of your academic pursuits that it's difficult to really set goals and achieve them because I have enough goals set already and I have enough deadlines right. from my classes. And I'm really a very interesting kind of writer where I almost need to be unavoidably inspired to really write something meaningful and write something good. If I'm, if I'm not absolutely a hundred percent feeling it in every bone of my body, it feels very forced and it feels very fake to me. Most of my screenplays are rooted in dreams I've had that I've gotten stuck on for a few days. And then I finally try to turn it into writing, but I can't just later today, I couldn't allot the hours of between four and six to sit down and work on a screenplay because I would just get stuck and then I would produce things that I didn't really, I wasn't feeling and I didn't really like. And that's why it's so difficult to make films. You know, that's why I have, I'm working on so many different screenplays because my focus is constantly moving around from screenplay to screenplay. And I make a lot of notes, but I can never just tell myself, all right, today we're going to sit down and we're going to finish this one and we're going to start filming it. So with that being the case, for you personally, why is it important to also be involved in some of these extracurricular activities that you just mentioned? Because, you know, as, as you basically just showed, you have kind of a, uh, a minimum amount of time. And then to divvy it up into certain, certain buckets, mm-hmm. you kind of have to choose wisely. So how do you go about the process of making sure that you're involved in all the things that you want to be involved in and to the extent that you want to be involved in them? Well, there's always the freshman syndrome where you go to the involvement fair and you sign up for 15 clubs and right. you, you end up being a part of one or two of the max. And there's so many things that you want to do, but sometimes you need to you need to kind of make a list and prioritize which ones really mean the most to you. you know, the acapella group is very important to me because I've made such close friends and, and bonds through that experience. And it, it's an audition group, so it feels really good to be accepted into something that isn't just open to everybody. You know, you had to work hard to get to where you are and that's really cool, but it really depends on your prior interests and then what just feels right to you. I I would love to be a part of as many clubs here as I could, but I know that I would sign up for too much and then my plate would be too full and I would have to push some to the side and focus on 
ones that really matter. And I think when you sign up for too many things, that's when you realize the most which ones you care about the most. So I know I'll be in acapella until I graduate. That's very important to me. And I, I was a tennis player in high school and I still like playing tennis very much recreationally. But if I had to pick between being on an intramural team and singing in my group, I would pick singing. Or if I had to pick, you know, uh, playing an intramural sport or being part of the recycling club over doing a 48 hour film festival or a 24 hour film festival, I would try to pick the film festival. So it really comes down to what just feels the best to you and what, what environments you feel the happiest in, because I'm at my happiest when I'm doing things that have artistic pursuits. I, I'm, I love surrounding myself with art and it's even better when you're also surrounded by really great people that can share in this experience with you. So why did you end up choosing PC? I applied to 13 schools and PC looked like it had the best opportunities for me. I didn't want to go to a very specific school. I I got into Emerson, but I knew that if I went to Emerson, I would be really limiting what I could study there. And I didn't know if two years into my college experience, I wouldn't be interested in English and philosophy and film anymore. And I would be more interested in accounting or, Mm -hmm. or something that would require a liberal arts environment to really explore. And I don't like schools that are too big. So I really, once I started reading more about PC, I'd never given PC a lot of attention in my initial college search. But once I, I got the folder that said I got in, I started reading about it more and then I visited the campus a few times and everything just felt really good here. It wasn't, it's not too small, but it's not a huge school. So it gives you the opportunity to get to know your professors really well. I have a lot of really great relationships with a few different professors here in the philosophy department and the film department that perhaps I couldn't have had the opportunity to explore in a school like Boston University where there's 5,000 students in every class. Mm -hmm. So PC was kind of the the best balance between big city school and small community school. And I, again, a huge proponent of the liberal arts education. And I know that this school specifically has really great philosophy and theology and uh, humanities studies, as well as a really flourishing theater, dance, and film department that down in Smith, it's just such a great environment down there and everybody's so involved and you just meet such great people, whether it's faculty members or administrative members or students that you can really share your passions with. And again, when a school is, is too big or too unidirectional in their focuses, it's difficult to really explore every avenue. And I feel like I would be doing myself a disservice if right off the bat, I was limiting myself on what I was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. PCs allowed me to not only explore a lot of different academic avenues, but also give myself a chance to figure out who I am and and what I'm trying to do and where my passions and my heart really lie. And it gives me time to kind of cultivate myself as an individual inside and outside of the classroom. And that's something that you can't really find in, in a school unless you really feel like you belong there. Right, right. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Blaine. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, our pleasure.